to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, and we're going to look at verses 29 through 44. Luke 19, 29 through 44. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the coat, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the coat? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the coat and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching <clears throat> near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Father, I want to ask this morning that as we consider your word, that you speak to our hearts, that you open our spirit to receive what you would want to say to us, that you give us encouragement today from the Scriptures, that you bring conviction by your Spirit through the Word, Lord, that if there are those this morning who need to come to know you, would you give them understanding and open their eyes to perceive and respond to the truth. And Lord, as we consider the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, I ask you to especially bless us with the remembrance of what we have read and contemplated. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Today begins what we uh, in the church like to call Holy Week. It's a week that we remember certain things, significant events in the life of Christ that are very precious to us. Like Christmas when we celebrate the Advent and the Incarnation and the coming of Christ into this world. At Easter time, we celebrate and remember 
uh, his death and crucifixion and atonement and his resurrection. And we traditionally begin with this Sunday and with a story that is recorded in all four Gospels, the event of Jesus going into Jerusalem and being celebrated as a coming king. Actually, I think as we look at the whole week of events, starting with this Sunday and going through next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, there are three triumphal events that occur during this week. One is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And so we have that moment. The other is the triumphal atonement that occurs on Friday as Jesus gives His life on the cross for our sin. And the third is the triumphal resurrection that we celebrate next Sunday as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of the grave in glory. I want to take a fresh look at the triumphal entry this morning and at the triumphal atonement because Jesus makes a statement in this passage from Luke's Gospel. Luke is the only one that records this particular statement, but here's what Luke tells us, that in the midst of the thronging crowds and all of their uh, celebration, the Pharisees make an appeal to Jesus. They say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is kind of getting out of hand and you need to settle them down. And Jesus makes this statement, I tell you, if they keep silent, the rocks will cry out. Now, all my life, I have looked at that phrase as a figure of speech. I, I just kind of looked at that and said, well, Jesus is, is speaking in hyperbole. He's saying, well, if these people are quiet, the, the stones are going to speak up, you know. And it's, it's just kind of a saying, a figure of speech. And as I was praying over what to uh, consider this Sunday and, and looking at Palm Sunday and what we celebrate, it seemed like the Lord highlighted this verse for me. And the more I thought about it, it seemed like He was saying to me, look at these words, if these are silent, the stones will cry out. I suppose because we have been studying Genesis and the creation of all things and and we've been looking very closely at God calling things into existence by the word of His power and then holding them together by the word of His power. Maybe that was freshly in my mind, but as I thought about these words, it began to occur to me that there was more here than a figure of speech. Perhaps this was a literal statement. Perhaps it was even a prophetic statement. Perhaps Jesus is telling us something and underscoring its significance, that when people fail to recognize the significance of the event, even the earth will cry out in recognition. That it will not be overlooked. And so, let's think about this morning together, first of all, this triumphal entry, and then consider the triumphal atonement. All four of the Gospels record... Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And I just want to give you a little background so I can set the scene for you, so you can understand the dynamics of, of what's going on here. 
Not too long before this moment, Jesus performed really his greatest miracle of all. He had done many miracles. He had done many signs. The blind were given sight. The lame walked. Um, even people had been raised before. But Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. He was not on his way to burial. He hadn't just died. He had been, he had died, been prepared, been wrapped up, put in the tomb. The tomb had been sealed and the mourners were in place. And Jesus had not shown up in time. Four days had passed. People had seen Lazarus die. They had helped prepare his body for burial. And Jesus had come and stood before that tomb and said, uh, open the door, uh, take away the, the rock or whatever. And he called out and Lazarus came out. And now he's walking around. And this is the most fantastic miracle uh, and, and people are talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. So much so that the Scripture says that Jesus withdrew to a town called Ephraim, kind of in the hillside, away from Bethany and, and away from Jerusalem, and did not want to be caught up in that uh, kind of um, excitement and all until the right moment. Meanwhile, the Pharisees have looked at this event and they said, this is the last straw. This guy's got to go. I mean, if he keeps this up, the whole world's going to follow him. You know, read John's Gospel. <laughs> you know, if, if this keeps happening, everybody's going to go. And we're not going to have any power and Rome is going to squash us like a bug again. And, and we're just going to be in a mess and we've got to deal with him. Maybe we should deal with Lazarus too. Poor guy. I, you know, I feel for him. Because he had already been dead and buried. And now he's back. And they're going to kill him again. You know, it's just, it, it's this kind of attention. And Jesus not wanting to, to allow events to get ahead of themselves pulls away. But then in the appointed time. He makes his move toward Jerusalem. This is the last time he's going. This is the last time as in the flesh before the resurrection. And he has picked the moment and he has picked the hour. We don't know. We may suppose that he had already made arrangements for the cult. We don't know that uh, for sure. But uh, it's kind of interesting that, you know, he says, go take this cult and if they say, what are you doing? It's almost like there was a code set up. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just imagining things. But, you know, say the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay. Well, then you can have a colt. colt that no one had ever sat on. But as he moves from Ephraim toward Bethany and on toward Jerusalem, he sends his disciples to get this colt. And that was very significant because not only was it a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but it was a recognized way of of heralding and acknowledging a king. And so they bring the colt that no one's ever ridden. They put their garments on it. 
They put Jesus on it. He's going to ride an unbroken colt. I've always been fed. There's a lot of things about this event that fascinates me. That's one of them. The colt accepted him because he is the Lord and Master. And they began to move toward Jerusalem. I heard Carrie saying at the beginning of the service, you know, some of those occasions when you get everybody together and, and it's kind of like party time and all the kids are there and, and they're kind of running wild and everybody's having a great time. And, and here's this celebration as the, the news is Jesus is coming now. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Wow, this is going to be a great moment. And the disciples are there and the other people begin to accumulate. The kids are there and, and they're cutting branches and throwing them on the ground and they're taking off their coats and throwing them on the ground and paving the way for the king and they're shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is the one that comes in the name of the Lord! Glory to God in the highest! And the Pharisees are about to you know, have heart attacks. Oh man, this is the last thing we need is for him to come to town like a king. Man, the Roman government's going to be up in arms. Pilate's going to go crazy. We're going to lose out. This is horrible. We've got to settle this down. And so, um, they decide that they're going to try to get Jesus to quiet the group. That's when he makes that statement. If these are silent, the rocks will cry out. But I want you to enter into Jesus' thought and heart and mind just for a moment. As the crowd gathers, as the cacophony of praise and sound and commotion and all the celebration begins to rise, as they're approaching Jerusalem, Jesus comes to the crest where he can see the city. And imagine what's going on in his heart. Last week, I, I asked you to go back to the garden and imagine slaying that animal to cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve. Imagine the heart of Jesus now seeing Jerusalem in front of him for his last entrance in this dispensation. A city that represented the object of his affection and his heart for centuries. God says to Israel, Behold, I have loved you with an everlasting love. The, the scriptures refer to Israel, the nation of Israel, and the Jewish people as the apple of of his eye. This is the place where he should be recognized. This is the place where he should be the king. They should honor him. You say, well, what's all this going on? Jesus sees through the crowd. All the celebration, all the loud clapping, all the glad hosannas, these people are remembering that He fed 5,000. They're remembering that He heals people. They're remembering that um, they're under Roman oppression and they would certainly like to be delivered. In their mind, Jesus is a political answer to their temporal problems. He's going to come 
and, and overthrow Rome and set us free and feed us food and take care of us and He's going to be the answer to all of our needs. But Jesus knew they really did not know who He was. In fact, He knew that this same crowd that were so uh, ecstatic on this day, just six days later, were going to be saying, crucify Him. Crucify Him. We, we don't want this man. He's not living up to our expectations. And as Jesus had all of those things going through His mind as He looked down upon Jerusalem, the Scripture says He began to weep. Have you ever been in that position? Where no one around you seems to get what you see? And you can see through the circumstances? And they're all happy for the wrong reasons? And you can see the problem, and it kind of breaks your heart. Jesus said, oh, if you had known, if you had only known, if you recognized the day of your visitation, if you could only see what this is really all about. And they didn't. They had no idea. It's interesting to me that as I look at these three triumphs this week, the triumphal entry, the crowds, the mobs, the throngs celebrated his entry. When I look down the road at the resurrection, the disciples and the followers, the faithful, celebrated his resurrection. After he was risen from the dead, he appeared to Mary, then he appeared to the Ten, because Judas was gone and Thomas wasn't there. Then he appeared to Thomas and the eleven, and he appeared to Peter, and he appeared to others and the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, and he appeared, uh, Paul tells us in Corinthians, one time to 500 people at once. He showed himself clearly and visibly to those who loved him and followed him, but he did not cast himself before the throngs and multitudes as some sort of carnival act. He made sure that those who loved and cared for him knew that he had come out of the grave, that he was bodily risen and physically triumphant. And so, in the resurrection, the followers of Christ celebrated. But in the triumphal atonement, no one celebrated. No one recognized the significance of that particular event. I want us to realize this morning what happened on Friday after Palm Sunday. I want to remind you this morning that Jesus was not a victim of circumstances. I want you to know that he did not come into Jerusalem as a king and then the crowd being disappointed decided to, to get rid of him. And, and, and he just kind of fell prey to that. I don't even want us to think this morning that eh, all of that was kind of in the plan of God, that he would show up and, 
and then they would arrest him and try him and crucify him. And, and, and so that would kind of be how the, the atonement for our sins worked out, that Jesus would allow himself to become the, the victim of these circumstances that sort of spun out of control as this week went on. None of those are true. Look with me in John chapter 10 for a moment. You turn there in your Bibles to John chapter 10, verse 18. I think we should start in 17 for the sake of the context. In John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Lest there be any doubt in our minds about why Jesus went to the cross, how that happened, I want us to be clear this morning that the Bible plainly says from the mouth of Jesus Himself, I chose the cross. I determined to go there on my initiative. I laid my life down by a choice. I have that authority. And I have the authority to take it up again. No one does these things to me. There is, to be sure, a certain amount of permission granted. But let us not think for a heartbeat that Jesus was ever out of control of the situation. He was in total control. So that what He endured and what He went through, He did so willingly. Because the Scripture says He chose us. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and despised the shame of it all, that He might willingly go to the cross for us. I know that many of you who have listened to me for years are probably tired of me uh, recounting John 18, but it's important, and if you've never seen it before, it's worth underlining in your Bible. In John 18, we have the account of the Roman guard and the the Jewish temple guard coming to arrest Jesus as he is in the garden. Judas is going to point out to them where he is and lead them to the spot. And there he's going to identify Jesus with that fateful kiss. And they show up and the commotion is heard outside the garden. And we pick up the story in verse 4 and it says, Jesus Therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. You see that? Jesus was fully aware of what was about to unfold. He is, he's been in prayer. It's been a struggle for him. He's been in the garden praying with great angst, drops of blood forming in his perspiration as he wrestles over this decision that he has made in 
cooperation with the divine counsel of the Trinity from ages past, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the determination was made that He would be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, that would take away the sin of the world. Now the moment has come. And for Jesus, that moment was like a dreaded event in some ways is for all of us. The glory on the other side is fantastic, but the moment facing us is filled with, and I can't even go with what all, I don't have any idea what all was going through his mind, but the separation from the Father and the, the costliness of the experience, and John tells us he knew everything that was about to transpire. He knew all about the trial and all about the beating and all about the crown of thorns and all about the, the mocking and the shame. He knew all of that was coming. But he goes to meet them. Doesn't hide. Doesn't shrink away. He's settled the issue. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he goes to meet them and he says, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says to them, I am. I am. And Judas, who was also betraying him, was standing with them. And when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. When you couple that with John 10, no one takes my life from me. And you look at the guard that has come to arrest him and they can't even stand up in his presence. The moment he identifies himself with those eternal Words that identify Yahweh, Jehovah God, I am. They fall down. He went with them willingly. There was no other way they could take him. They couldn't even stand up long enough to put him in shackles. They were devastated before his presence. He stood up. And allowed them to take him into custody. Everything that happened to him, he allowed. There was no one that took his life. Turn further over even to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. You know how the tabernacle was set up and then later the temples that were designed followed the pattern. And that in the wilderness, the Holy of Holies was the place where the mercy seat was and the Ark of the Covenant and the wings of the cherubim and the manifestation of God's presence dwelt there. It was the symbol. In fact, in the Old Testament tabernacle, it was the reality of His manifest presence. But even in Herod's temple... In the temple ritual and sacrifice, the Holy of Holies was the symbolic significance of the presence of God. And once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies and offer the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Once a year, for a brief moment, he would go in and sprinkle the blood and back out. And that was the only intimacy that could be allowed in the presence of a holy God. 
And so we come to Hebrews 9.11, and the Scripture says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. Now, there's a tabernacle that the earthly one was a copy of. There's another one in heaven that is the real presence of God. And the scripture says, Jesus, the great high priest, enters not the earthly, but the heavenly, and not with the blood of bulls and goats, but it says, He entered the holy place through His own blood, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh in that temporary ritual sense, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself. You see? He, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself. How did He end up on the cross? He offered Himself. How did they arrest Him? He allowed them. How were they able to take the Son of God and put Him through all that torture? He submitted to them. And when He went to the cross, He did so because He chose to go not because they had any power to put him there. It was only by divine permission and his willing consent. I want us to see this because this is very important as we come up to the last moments on the cross. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 27. Someone after the first service said, wow, you were all over the Bible this morning. Well, not quite. I'm not using too much in the Old Testament. but (laughs) You're going to have to turn in the New for a ways. Matthew chapter 27. I want to take you to Friday on the crucifixion. And I want to remind us of the sequence of events that happened there, beginning in verse 45 of Matthew 27. And now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. We're being given information about the process, the sequence of that experience outside the walls of Jerusalem as Jesus and two others on his right and left are being crucified. And somewhere about the middle of the day, about noontime, when it should have been the brightest, the earth becomes dark. People must begin to think. You know, you know how you feel around here when it's like black or it has that greenish-yellow weirdness? At the wrong time, it's like, whoa, what's happening? You know, and we all go out and we look to see, you know, what's the guy doing? Here the earth is dark when it's not supposed to be. And people are beginning to feel that anxiety. And three more hours pass in this darkness. Somewhere in 
the process. Jesus cries out, about the ninth hour, he cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I, and, I, and I remind you, not for the sake of redundancy, but because we need to keep these fresh, our habits take over our thinking. Jesus was not wondering why he was on the cross and why God had turned his back, as it were. He was reminding them of the 22nd Psalm. These are the opening words to Psalm 22. That's how the Jews referenced the Psalms. They quoted the first line. Jesus is saying, are you wondering what's going on here? Psalm 22 is your answer. And go back, read that this week as you're contemplating all of the events of this week. Read the 22nd Psalm in your devotion sometime this week. David describes the crucifixion as if he had seen one under Roman rule. It is so accurate. And he is pointing to that time when Jesus, a thousand years before Christ, he is pointing out the crucifixion. The description is amazing. And Jesus is saying, this is the explanation And then as time goes along, it says some of those who were standing there uh, heard it and began saying, this man is calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and, and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. Because one of the other Gospels tells us somewhere in that time frame, he said, I'm thirsty. And they offered him some moisture. If you've studied the, the pathophysiology of crucifixion, you know part of it is dehydration. And Psalm 22 describes that. My tongue clings to the roof of my mouth. My lips and my mouth are dry like a potsherd, like a clay jar that's dried out. And Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And they gave Him something to drink. But the rest of them said, verse 49, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now we know from the other Gospels that when he cried out this last time with a loud voice, there were two other statements that he made. In rapid succession, he said, it is finished. Followed by, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The scripture says, in that last moment, with a loud voice, Jesus cried out with those that declarative statement, It is finished, the debt is paid, the atonement for sin is fully accomplished. It's done. And in that moment, He gave His Spirit up into the hands of the Father. And the Bible says some interesting things. Behold, verse 51, The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Now, I submit to you that on this triumphant atonement, no one was celebrating. 
No one even recognized the significance of what was transpiring. The disciples were confused, disillusioned, and dismayed. Many of them had run away already. Some of them were watching. Some from a safe distance. They didn't want to be drawn into the crucifixion event. Mary was at the foot of the cross. His mother weeping that dreaded moment from his childhood and early prophecies had finally pierced her heart and she was broken hearted. The crowds were not rejoicing. Everyone had left. In fact, I'll show you in a minute, I think only the centurion, one of them, recognized what was really going on, but none of them celebrated. If these become silent, the rocks will cry out. I think that what happened is the very earth itself cried out in recognition of what was occurring. The very elements understood the significance of the Maker, the Master, the Creator, who's hanging on a cross and who has completed the work. It is finished. There's nothing else to be done. I don't know how that moment was derived. Again, this is one of the mysteries in the Council of the, of the Trinity as God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because all three persons of the Godhead are involved in this event. Jesus is, is offering His blood through the Eternal Spirit. The sacrifice is being made and, and some how in the process, in the mind of God, the precise amount of time of suffering was accomplished to, to cover the sin of the world. To pay for yours and mine. To cover the sins of everyone. To make available to all who would believe forgiveness and cleansing. Somehow, that time was predetermined. And at this moment, after roughly six hours, we presume, and three hours from the midday darkness, Jesus said, it is done. And an amazing thing happened. The very earth began to quake. The rocks split apart. The earthquake rumbled into the city of Jerusalem. The temple was nowhere near the hill of crucifixion. Jesus was outside the city gates on the hill of Golgotha. But the temple was in town. And yet as the earth rumbled and the rocks shook, the giant opening into the Holy of Holies began to tremble and the hand of God, as it were, reached out of heaven and tore the veil open from the top. The Scripture is very careful to say from the top to the bottom. We think of a veil as being a very thin piece of fabric. You can see through the veil. Brides wear a veil sometimes. You can, you can see through it. They can see through it or they'd have real trouble getting down the aisle. 
We think of a veil as a very thin, transparent thing. But the veil of the temple was not thin. It was approximately a foot and a half thick. And it was not small. It was at least 18 feet tall according to the dimensions of the Old Testament. And the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood and back out and the curtain would close. And, and, and that was it. But as the earth began to violently tremble, I, I looked up online to see if there were any earthquakes around A.D. 25 or 26 that were recorded. I actually found one. All the way in Pakistan, near Rawalpindi, up in the mountains of the northern Pakistan, there was an earthquake in A.D. 25 that uh, caused the destruction of a bunch of Buddhist monasteries. And all the way there, this earthquake was, was pretty significant, and it was recorded. I don't know if the whole world shook. By the way, I, I won't bore you with all the details, but it would have been about A.D. 25-26 that Jesus was crucified. And there was a significant earthquake in that time frame. But the whole earth began to shake, and God opened the way for access, symbolically on the earth, because Jesus was the veil that was torn asunder on the cross to open the way of access for you and me in the heavens. He tore the curtain aside and allowed us through Him to enter into intimate communion with God all the time, 24-7, forever. Because, unlike the blood of bulls and goats that had to be repeated and repeated and repeated, His blood took away our sin. His blood cleansed us now and forever. His blood removed the guilt. And God could receive us into His presence. Powerful significance. But more than that, as if that were not enough, it says the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. You know, that's a little scary. The place is shaking, rocks are flying apart, and of all things, some of the rocks are covering the tombs. And they're being broken open so that there's, you know, access that they didn't put too many people in the ground. They buried them in caves and cool, dry places above the ground, and now they're opened up. And they didn't open those places up except to put another body in. And now these things are opening and breaking apart. And then the Scripture says, astoundingly, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now, this is not just any dead person. These are the saints, and these are Old Testament saints. How do I know they're Old Testament saints? Because there isn't a New Testament yet. That's the only thing they can be. They have to be Old Testament saints. And uh, they start coming out of the tombs. Because not only is access to God broken open, but the power of death is canceled. This is the atonement. Sin has been dealt with. Say, what about all those Old Testament people? Well, according to Jesus and some of his stories, 
they were resting quietly and expectantly in the bosom of Abraham, as the Scripture calls that place where David said, I'll be gathered with my fathers, waiting for the day when their sins would be completely removed. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all the anticipation of faith, all of the looking forward was pointing to the day that Jesus would give his life on the cross of Calvary and truly take away their sin. Now it has occurred. And a resurrection of sorts is happening. They're appearing to many in the holy city. You know, we're never told what the Pharisees did about that. I mean, they thought they had trouble with Lazarus. Can you imagine, you know, walking down the street and seeing this guy, and it's like, you know, who are you? You know, and, and it's uh, Elisha, or Daniel, or David, or some of these people that, you know, and I don't know how they knew who they were, but there must have been some recognition, and, and, and people must have been going, oh my goodness, what is happening? Because the outward demonstration, in case anyone doubted, was that in the atonement for sin, the power of death was canceled. And those who were very much alive, Jesus had made that statement. When the scripture says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it does not say, I was the God. I am the God. They are living people. And now they're showing up, just in case you doubted. They're living people. The power of death has been broken. Resurrection is possible. And they appeared to many. And when the centurion, verse 54, and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened. That's an understatement, don't you think? I'm sure that was more than very frightened. They were trembling. They were quaking at what was going on in front of them. And the centurion, as the spokesman in this crowd, says, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, again, I, I, I've been taught uh, <clears throat> for many years, and it's, it's kind of just what's been said, that if you read the marginal translation of this, it could be interpreted or translated, this was a son of a God. The, this centurion, I mean, after all, he's Roman, he's polytheistic. What does he know? I, does he know what he's seeing? I mean, maybe he's just making a general observation. At least that's many of the things I've been told, many of the commentators. That this was a son of a God. Okay, but I don't think so, because if you look in Mark... Next book over toward the back of it, Mark 15, verse 39, we're given a little more information. In Mark 15, verse 39, And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him. Ah, now we're getting some more insight. This centurion was not just around the cross, 
But he was looking right at Jesus. He was standing right in front of him. I think there are probably a number of reasons why he was doing that. One is, if he did not successfully oversee the crucifixion of these three people, he would be on the next cross. Rome played no games with that. He was responsible to see that they died. And something very unusual was going on with the middle person. And I think that he, he wanted to see what was this man is speaking. He may even have been the one who put the, the, the vinegar to his lips. And he's standing right in front of him. And he observes two things. This one who has been on the cross for a number of hours, who is, has suffered immense agony, who has become dehydrated, suddenly with robust energy, cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. That was not a spiritual term. It was a commercial term to telesty. The debt is paid. What is he talking about? And then he says, Father, into your hand I commend my spirit. The centurion saw this with his own eyes. And the next words are in verse 39, And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last. This was a man not a stranger to death. This was a man who had seen other people die on crosses. This was a Roman soldier. He was acquainted with the nitty-gritty of life and death up close and personal. There was something about this one in front of him that commanded his attention. It was not usual. It was not the way it normally happens. This man gave up his spirit. He did not wind down and wear out. He did not die an agonizingly slow death. This man, when it was done, said, It is finished. Father, I give you my spirit. And he quit. And this centurion then felt the ground shaking and heard the rocks splitting and sensed the whole earth moving under him and remembered nailing those hands to the cross and hearing this one say, Father, forgive this man. He doesn't understand what he's doing. This guy didn't live with his head in a box. He knew the stories. He was there when the sign was nailed to the top of the cross. This is Yeshua, the Savior, King of the Jews. He knew that he had not committed any crimes in the normal sense. He had heard the stories. This man lived in the area. He was not oblivious to what was going on. He knew what was happening in front of him. But now he's convinced. 
that all the rumors are true, that all the stories are fact, as he sees how he dies and observes what's happening in the world, in the earth, in the very rocks. And he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Unless I'm mistaken, this is the only recorded human that got it. A Roman centurion who saw and put together, by the grace of God, the sequence of events and drew the right conclusion. But while the others were silent, the rocks cried out. If these remain silent, the rocks will cry out. John tells us in his gospel, the first chapter, verse 11, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And I remember taking Greek and getting far enough along to begin to understand a few things, and that's one of the first verses you go to when they want to highlight the significance of the of the uh, gender of pronouns and all that kind of stuff. And you go to John chapter 11 and your first insight into exegesis kind of comes alive. You know, when they point out that the first one, his own, is neuter and the second one is masculine, I think. He came to his own things. This world was his own. He made it. The planet, the rocks, the trees, the rivers, the mountains. He came to his creation in the incarnation. He came to his own things. But his own people did not receive him. And in the end, when the atonement was accomplished, his people were not there to celebrate it. But the rocks cried out. The very creation recognized the atonement of the Son of God. And you know, today the book of Romans tells us that the whole earth is groaning, yearning in anticipation of the manifestation of the sons of God. The whole world is waiting again. Jesus said, as the day of my coming approaches, there will be a rise in the number of earthquakes. There will be a rise in in wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines. There are going to be changes on the planet. It's like the whole planet is waiting for Him to come back. One day again, He will put His feet in Jerusalem. On the Mount of Olives, there will be an earthquake. It will be split. The King of Kings will come again and the earth will recognize His presence. The very rocks will proclaim His coming as he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and establishes his kingdom. Friends, we are his followers. We are the ones who have been forgiven, cleansed, redeemed, and will be resurrected. We have life eternal because our Lord Jesus Christ chose the cross. It was not accidentally put there. It wasn't a plan gone wrong. We all know that. 
He was not even a victim of angry Jews and powerful Romans. He willingly submitted. Offered himself as the sacrifice through the eternal spirit. Poured his blood out in the heavenly holy of holies. And through his own flesh opened access to the throne of God. For you and for me. Praise his name. Praise his name. Nothing really new here perhaps. But isn't it good to remember. Praise his name. For his precious gift. Of forgiveness and cleansing. And life eternal. Father thank you. For sending your son. Thank you Lord Jesus. For willingly coming. Thank you Holy Spirit. For mediating the sacrifice. Thank you, O God, for loving us to the point that you have ensured our salvation through Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at your right hand. Thank you for the day the rocks cried out.